Hello and welcome to History of Christian Theology. My name is Chad Kim. This week I will be talking with Dr. Scott McKnight about his new translation of the New Testament with InterVarsity Press called The Second Testament. Uh, Dr. McKnight has been on the show before. We talked about his book on Revelation, um, and this uh, new book has just come out this summer. Uh, it's been, he's been working on it for many years, um, so it was nice to be able to talk through uh, his principles of translation, some of his choices, um, and why it's important that there be another translation of the New Testament and, and the kind of vision that he offers with that book. Um, I'd also like to let listeners know about an opportunity to take a class on St. Augustine with me. Um, I'll be offering an online class through the Greystone Institute, um, and those, there's information on the Facebook page uh, for that. Uh, but uh, it'll be a seven-week course. We'll be talking through uh, the entirety of the confessions, and uh, it'll be about one-hour lectures uh, about once a week uh, for seven weeks. So uh, if you are interested in, do in, in being a part of that, please let me know, and I can get you in touch with the right people. Um, and um, it just seems like it's going to be a, a good opportunity to um, work through one of my favorite theologians and work through one of the most important books that he wrote. Um, we also had some nice comments on uh, on our Apple Podcast link. Um, so Anne uh, Fond said that she thinks that the show is great, um, and so really appreciated her uh, re uh, reviewing and rating us on iTunes um, and would recommend that you do the same. We also have Patreon, um, and we appreciate any support uh, that you'd be willing to give. Um, and... Um, and that helps keep the show alive and helps keep us hosted um, and things like that. So um, that's long enough for an interview. So thank you for listening. Um, and here's my conversation with Dr. Scott McKnight. Um, well, hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. Uh, today I have the privilege of speaking with uh, Scott McKnight. And this is the second time that uh, uh, the Reverend Canon, Dr. Scott McKnight, uh, has come uh, on the podcast. He, we talked with him about Revelation, and at the end of that episode, actually, he mentioned that he was doing a translation of the New Testament, which I also uh, was interested in. And, um, and so, uh, yeah, so I'm happy to have you. Um, so we'll be talking about uh, the, the way that this one's titled is The Second Testament, A New Translation. Um, and this is with IVP Academics. So I appreciate them supplying a copy of the book and glad that you're here. Well, thank you very much. Good to be with you again, brother. Yeah. Well, I guess actually I, I, I'd always, you know, my practice is to write down some questions so that the uh, guest has an idea of where I want to go. But I'm going to just start with I, I was reading the title and I realized I didn't put that one down. We could start there. So yeah. the Second Testament, yeah. um, you know, I think that probably alerts us to some of the other moves um, that you're going to make throughout the book. Uh, but you're, you know, even with that title, you're kind of putting the reader on the back foot. <laughs> Okay. Well, the uh, uh, this is how it started. Um, Tom Wright wrote a translation of the New Testament for his every uh, the Bible for everyone. They uh, it did very well, and um, at during that process, they asked John Golden Gate to do the Old Testament. Uh -huh. So he translated the Old Testament, then wrote these small reflection type commentaries. Tom Wright's published his New Testament separately. Then SPCK, who contracted both of them to write the Bible for everyone, put them together mm -hmm. into a Bible called the Bible for Everyone. Okay. And uh, the cover actually looked like a, the uh, paper jacket looked like a child's Bible. It wasn't <laughs> a very, but the, the book itself was fine. And um, so I started reading Golden Gate. Then at that time, not long after that, InterVarsity published John Golden Gay's translation as the First Testament. Mm. And uh, I, it was a beautifully bound book. And so I picked it up and I began to read it and I loved it. I loved I thought, man, this is this is giving me a whole new experience of reading the Old Testament. So I, w I was at an academic meeting with the editor at InterVarsity who, who was in charge of the Golden Gay volume. And, of course, they didn't publish right because that's owned by Zondervan separately. Mm. So I, um, he asked me what I thought, and I said, well, 
I said, the first thing that comes to mind is Golden Gate's translation and Tom Wright's translation do not belong together because they're <laughs> so different. Yeah. Tom's is so fluid and dynamic, uh, equivalent type theory. And I said, John's is more formal. And I said, he transliterates Hebrew words and it's clunky. It sounds like Hebrew. Uh, sometimes it's difficult in English. And I said, uh, he said, well, uh, what do you think should be done? I said, well, I said, I think you guys need to find someone to translate the New Testament this way. And he said, would you do it? And without hesitation, I said, yes, I will. All right. So I spent two years. And so that's why it's called the Second Testament. And that's why I have uh, I have followed John's approach, but John translated Hebrew. Uh So his translation is different than mine. I mean, I'm tempted to use Yehoshua, you know, uh, Yeshua and all this stuff for Jesus, but I translated Greek. Mm -hmm. So I had to use uh, what was going on in the Greek text. And so that's, uh, so mine is, is a reflection of John's an echo of John's approach, but with the Greek New Testament. So we yeah. called it the Second Testament. And so the Jesus is, uh, yeah, you you alluded to that. So all the names sort of retain a kind of, well, I guess it would be sort of a Hebraic Greek character. Uh, be hard to call it strictly speaking Greek. Uh, but yeah, there's that, that it sounds more like the Greek reads um, as, as these are sort of Hebrew names in Greek. Is that is yeah, well, that fair? No, they're Johannes. Uh, yeah. These are these are Greek names, and I yeah. I'm translating the Greek translation. Yeah, um, I, I'm transliterating the Greek, not the Hebrew, but yeah. they do have Hebrew names. So it's yeah. but it's it's Greek. Yeah, right, right. But it, yeah, through a few layers there, and Second but Testament. Let, let me yeah. let me say this though. There's something that happens when someone. Uh, let's say, colonizes your name into their language. Yeah. You know, um, so it's, this is the illustration I always give. We have the book, the letter of James. Yeah. But that's, that's an English name that came from old English, that came from old French, that came from Greek, that was, and that came from Hebrew, Yaakov. Yeah. So uh, I transliterate the Greek name, and it's Jacobos, and that evokes something different. Now, some of the names, it doesn't matter, but um, I do think that there's a bit of a disrespect in colonizing someone's actual name. Yeah. So. Well, so it's interesting. Uh, I mean, so you, yeah, so you've used the language of colonization there. Sometimes, you know, you, I guess to put it in a different register, we could call it, uh, you know, sort of the principle of translatability, like these names are yeah, translatable. Yeah. And so, you, you know, I think of like Thomas, who's called Didymus, the twin or something like, so you have, sometimes you find the writers actually giving several different versions of the name. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and you are taking heap, like, well, even the word for Mary uh, has a certain resonance in Hebrew, like of Mar and bitterness, but Maria in Latin sounds like ocean. Um, And so you have, you do have the different like uh, ways that those words sound in their languages, but they keep them, right? So they like, you know, it's like they keep the name Mary. They, they kind of Latinize it a little bit, but they don't totally give her another name and say, no, that's right. Yeah. Like, so, you know, I, it reminds me, speaking of lobe volumes, uh, Caesar's Gallic War, he says they call themselves the Celts and the Belgae and the Helvetii, and, and I call them the Gauls. Uh, and so he 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 just outright says well you don't even get to get to give your own name like i'm just going to totally give you your own name well that's that's julius caesar he gets to do what he wants he's the (laughs) emperor but uh, like i use mariam but sometimes you know in the new testament it's maria yeah so um i i just tried to uh, use the greek name and and transliterate it and let people deal with it the way it is yeah, I, my my uh, a Latin American, Spanish speaking, Portuguese speaking students appreciate Johannes uh-huh. and uh, Jesus. Uh, sure. they, you know, it gives them a little evocation in their own language. Yeah. 
Well, and and so, uh, it, yeah, I've never looked at the Golden Gaze uh, tran- or Golden Gaze translation. I have used um, Robert Alter's uh, Hebrew, mm-hmm. and I love I love his for its uh, readability, for the beauty of the language. It feels different, but it it's still very readable. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Oh, uh, yeah, I've read I've read it, uh, all of one volume and most of, of the other two volumes. The um, I love Robert Alter, and I like what he's doing, and I like that he has all those notes at the bottom. Yeah. And I don't like the fact that the volumes are so freaking heavy <laughs> that you, you break your thumb using them. I mean, there's yeah. three big volumes. And that, you know, I've been asked by some people, uh, why didn't you think of putting annotations at the bottom? Well, sure. Golden Gate didn't, and mine is like Golden Gate's. And the other thing is it would have made the volume probably – probably three times longer yeah and then uh you're talking about a lot more expensive yeah yeah well and and maybe um one thing that you could sort of talk about in terms of like your process of making it uh i don't i don't know this about your scholarship so have you ever been on a translation committee uh i have uh now this is interesting this word committee is is interesting because yeah tell me something about that it's not really a committee okay uh, but uh, yes, I was involved in translating Luke okay. for the New Living Translation. Now, someone said that I was involved in Matthew as well. They saw it in their New Living Translation. And I said, well, if I was, I don't remember doing that at all. <laughs> but I may have been a consultant, but I don't remember it. I was involved in another one with Joel Green on the Gospel of Luke. Uh, but committees committees don't translate. <laughs> Someone is commissioned, let's say, to be the primary translator. Let's just say okay. they ask you to do Augustine's uh, in Caridian, okay? Yeah. And then the, if there's a committee involved, there would be other people who would read it and make suggestions. And over time, uh, as like the NIV, it was done by a ver- various translators— all, I think all white guys at the beginning. And then they got together and had discussions. But every year then they would meet um, for a week or so and go through all the suggestions that came in. Now, that's a lot of money on the part of the Bible, the Committee for Bible Translation. So I don't know who's funding it. And now I think Zondervan does as well. But that, that's the committee work mm. that is involved in discussing revisions but the original translation was done by probably one person just like it was for the King James version right uh, but here's here's something I wrote about this on Monday on my on my substack the I think the majority of translations of the Bible have been done by individuals hmm. uh, not by committees. So I mean I saw a list of about 30 different translations of the New Testament all done by individuals. Uh, I don't know. I don't know the origins of some of these translations, but I know with the new living translation, I translated Luke and I think someone else translated it. And then someone's job was to put them together in a way. But um, it's, it's not like a group gets together and goes over the Greek text and comes up with a translation. Do you know how long that would take for scholars <laughs> to agree on oh, a translation? Well, I don't think no, they could ever come to an agreement. But yeah, they wouldn't, yeah. And it would, how would they ever, they would never agree on Kai, yeah. on, on Anne. So, yeah. yeah, well, and I, I'm, I'm part of the project that translate all of Augustine's works into English. So I've done Augustine stuff, and yeah, they just, they just send me out whatever I'm gonna do. So I'm working on the Do- anti-Donatist writings, and uh, I do get a little bit of feedback, but it's nowhere near as contentious uh, yeah, as, yeah, as yeah, like right. New Testament. So. Uh, yeah, so I, I mean, I had always just heard that it was, you know, committees uh, for the the Bible. So I, you know, that's that's interesting to me. I I actually heard, even heard David Bentley Hart say the other day something about his translation and why it was better because it wasn't a committee. But mm. I guess uh, that maybe there's uh, some correction that needs to be made. Most of these actually are just individuals. Well, you know, I like. Um, there's something that happens with a committee that. Yeah. Uh, let's say, provides the wisdom of consensus. Uh-huh. 
of intelligent people who should know about this stuff. Yeah. Okay. I can, I can live with that. And I think that's true, but there's something about an individual's translation that has more courage. Mm. It'll have more edge. It'll have more reflection that a committee might be afraid to do. Yeah. And I think that's what the secret to, let's say, Tom Wright or to John Golden Gay, and I hope it will be said about mine, is that I had the confidence uh, to have some courage uh, to do some things that would never go by a committee. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I think even calling it the Second Testament, you know, I mean, I've never yeah. heard it referred to in that way. I mean, you know, I, I tell my students in intro to theology, like, you know, well, academics say things like Hebrew Bible and Greek Bible and these sorts of things, but they all have their problems and difficulties, just yeah, like yeah. old and new. And uh, so, yeah, so it's even even that, even calling it the Second Testament. Now, I also realize that a lot of times publishers give names. So I don't know if you gave no, it that no, it was name. Mine. That's it was mine because of Golden Gaze first. But um, first of all, way back in the 1970s, I bought a book from Zondervan by Philip Payne's father. His name is J. Barton Payne. It was called The Theology of the Older Testament. Mm. That was pretty clever. Yeah. Um, I think it was called The Older, The Former. But um, Golden Gay wants to make a point that the uh, First Testament and the Second, the Second Testament is not does not make the First Testament old in the sense that we don't need it. Right. Uh, but uh, there is New Testament warrant in Hebrews uh, in chapter 8 and 10 for using the word second for mm. for the new covenant. Yeah. So there's new as well. So either way, uh, it's I think it don't was, we get— we get our title, the old and new from, I think it's Tertullian is the first one who does that. If I remember correctly. Yeah. 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 But we do have, uh, you do have Palaios and you have Kainos and, and Naos used. Uh So, um, this is, this to me is a, is a, is a debate without difference. Yeah. Well, or even differing conceptions of the whether or not newness and oldness are good or bad. Yeah, uh, that's right. Yeah, that's <laughs> so, yeah, we live in an age where new means better, um, yeah, that's but right. that's not necessarily true for the first century. Yeah. Um, oh, interesting. So um, – so what what was your sort of I, I mean, I guess, you know, a lot of this goes back to Golden Gay, but uh, your what was your kind of intention for this? Do you see this as useful to a scholar? I guess it was released with IVP Academic or at least the volume I have. Uh, so does that mean you see this more as like something used in seminaries in in universities or do you expect this to be, you know, used in more private study? How, how do you envision uh, people engaging with this? Well, the uh, publishers has its own categories for its separate divisions. A translation of the Bible is going to go on the academic side, I guess. So it's not, all right, here's who it's for. It's for people. This is just, this is virtually the words out of Golden Gaze, introduction and out of mine. It's for people who are already familiar with the Bible. So Mm -hmm. in my case, with the New Testament, and they are looking for a fresh look, look, at the at the New Testament, and so if you already if you're a, an avid reader of the NIV or the CEB or the NRSV now with the UE after it, uh, any of these translations, and then you pick up mine, I think what you will see is, uh, in a sense, this is this is bold, but I think I'm close. Uh, you know, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna fight for this. You will see what that those translators did to the Greek text. Mm. Mine is more the bones of the Greek text, and they put flesh, English flesh and muscle on the text. Mine, it, I like to call it, this is, this is fair. <laughs> it's my, it's an untranslation theory. Yeah. I'm trying to do as little, uh, let's say, interpretive moves as possible, though, I'm not capable of not doing some of that. Yeah. I, I use siblings for Adelphoi uh, <laughs> for, for different reasons, you know. So uh, there's, there's interpretation. But I think overall people will look at – if they're reading their NIV and they look at mine, they go, oh, wow, that's, that's, 
not quite as clear as the NIV. And I would say there's a reason why it's not quite as clear. Yeah. So, okay, you know, you and I know Greek. I, I don't know what your audience knows, but let's just say that we have pistis Christu in the New Testament, <laughs> faith of Christ. All right. Yeah. This is debated among scholars. Is this the faithfulness of Jesus Christ? In other words, something, his, his acts of faith. Or is it faith in Jesus Christ? Right. Well, uh, there is a debate of whether this is a subjective genitive or an objective genitive. Well, the genitive does not, uh, let's put it this way, the genitive is underdetermined. Mm. It's not specific. Mm -hmm. And the typical translations make it specific. Yeah. I translate it the Christos faith. Mm. And I think mine is as underdetermined as the Greek text. And you have to figure out how you think those two words are related. You know Mm. as well as I do that a genitive is one of the most common uh, cases used. And at the same time, it often is unclear. Mm -hmm. It has a relationship with the other noun and you kind of have to figure it out. But our figuring it out is more determined than the Greek actually is. So I I try to do that sort of thing quite a bit. Yeah. Well, it, re- you know, it reminds me of the, the so I think it comes from Italian, but translator is traitor, right, is the way that we yeah. say it in English. Traditore, traditore or something like that. Tra- yeah, 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 I wasn't going to try to pronounce it because I wasn't yeah. going to remember it correctly. I, I'm, not yeah. a, I'm not an Italian speaker. Um, but so you're trying to sort of betray as little as possible. That's kind of yes. your... Um, I think that's, that's a very nice way of saying what, what this translation is doing. Yeah. Um, well, but rather than I, I realized like I could uh, I had some places and I do want to kind of ask about some of those. Sure. Um, but um, actually, I thought maybe it'd be more interesting to start with. And I think you mentioned just then um, uh, your translation of Adelphos and Adelphu as uh, like as uh, siblings rather than going with brother uh, or as um, I think is it the one, there's one newer one that says brothers and sisters. Well, um, but, yeah, that's both but, the NIV, the NRSV, the NRSV. UE and the common yeah. English Bible. They're yeah. all inclusive, they call it. Yeah. So are there other places that you maybe that you would point to where you'd say you were particularly proud uh, of the way that it came out or that you feel like is indicative of what you uh, really wanted to showcase in this? Um, showcase. I don't want to that's a little strong for what I think I'm doing, but oh okay, well, I just, or something that yeah. you feel like is indicative of this yeah. of this principle of not betraying. Okay, well, of not betraying. All right, so sometimes the translation choice is the choice to say something that I think needs to be said that is not said in our translations. So instead of kingdom, Basileia, mm-hmm. I use empire. Mm. Well, you know, this is going to raise some eyebrows. And I'm thinking, okay, that's all right. The basileia uh, that is used in the Gospels is a term used for Antipas, for Pilate, uh, for Herod. uh, They have a kingdom, and they are connected to Rome. So the use of the word empire has a sense in which uh, God's empire is bigger than Rome's empire. I, mm-hmm. I, I like that translation. Of course, I know that that's pushing the button, but um, I, I at times choose what I call minority readings because mm-hmm. the committees are going to find a consensus of the most likely reading and always never represent the minority readings that I think at times deserve to be represented. So, a common word like peruamai, uh, I go, mm-hmm. uh, I translate journey, always mm-hmm. with the word journey somehow, because it's connected to the Greek word porea, which is always about a trip or a journey mm-hmm. that someone goes on. Um, so I think that's a minority translation, but at the same time, it's one that conveys something. When we say come and go all the time, these words disappear into meaninglessness. Yeah. Um, I avoided the word justification Mm. in the whole translation. 
Um, I use the word rightness or right. Somehow I'm, it's always connected to the word right, like writing a ship or writing the direction of the trip. Yeah. Um, I use that word. And I, I like that. Uh, it goes back to E.P. Sanders, who wanted to use the word righteous as a verb. He righteous. Mm. And, and the old English right wisening. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I like that because I think it conveys both the Hebrew and the Greek uh, that would be at work in this. So. Yeah, well, and and right, it's a. I think what you're uh, the that Greek the di, the root for dije uh, doesn't change. Although in English we have access to sort of a Latinate vocabulary and then a Germanic vocabulary, and sort of the old English following that yeah. Germanic root, um, where you you know there's not actually a two options, but rather one uh, for yeah. for the Greek, uh, and so it sounds like part of your goal in your untranslation is showing that there's not really uh, like there is in English, all of these so-called options. Uh, There's, there's just one. Well, here's, here's one Chaz that I think you'd like Chaz or Chad. I I go by Chad. It's fine, but yeah. Okay. Sorry. Uh, Chad Um, isn't really short for Charles, but that's what my grandma called me. And so that's what stuck. Uh, (laughs) um, Now I forgot what I was going to say. Translation. Uh, it'll it'll come it'll come to mind, but um, the um, like like for instance, save mm. sozo. Yeah, there you go. Soteria. Okay, here's one. This is the one I was thinking. Pistis. What do we do with pistis and pistuo? Yeah. Uh, the the words for faith and to believe. All right. In English, we we uh, we flip and flop because of how English uses these different terms in different ways. Sure. So pistuo can mean I believe, I trust, I let's say am trustworthy in some in some sense. Pistis noun can mean faith, it can mean the faith, it can mean belief, it can mean allegiance. Well, one of the goals of my translation was to do what Golden Gate did as much as possible, and that is to use one English word for one Greek word as much mm. as possible, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. even if at times it doesn't do real well in English. I, I'm okay with that as long as it's not silly. I couldn't do this with this word. I could not find one word. Mm-hmm. And uh, I want you to understand that the implications of a decision mean that every time that word occurs in the New Testament, I have to adjust it to that word. Yeah. So one of my editors said, I'm not crazy about how you translated this word. I said, did you look up the other 73 uses? <laughs> and she said, that's, that's not going to do, I'm not doing that. She said, that's your job. And and that was, was part of it. So I, for, for the verb, I have sometimes, I believe, no, I, I trust. Sometimes it's allegiance. Sometimes it's the faith. Yeah. So I I couldn't go there, but I did with Sozo. I I wanted to use, I think the word save in English, in the evangelical world, and this is an evangelical publisher, and I'm connected to the evangelical world. um, The the word- It was very diplomatic. Yeah. The the word save has sort of a very evangelical sense. Sure. Um. And it loses that sense of uh, healing that yeah, it has in the New Testament. So I use the word deliver. Yeah. And um, I think people go, okay, that word works. Um, but I really worked hard on that word. And I came to the conclusion that that word I thought worked best for what I was doing. Yeah. Well, that that was one that I sent you. Um, I've been doing some of my own research will be looking at some of the use of medical philosophy and health in the patristic era. Um, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, and that was one of the things that I you know realized, like how how connected whatever Christ's work was, was a work of healing. Um, although yeah, that's yeah. easily obscured, as you say, uh, when your go to word is salvation. And I, I heard another scholar talk about the sacralization of language. Um, um, and so there's this like, you know, when we and I, I was raised in an evangelical context and still in one. Well, I'm in a kind of Catholic 
I teach at a Catholic school now, but um, but still that idea of salvation has become almost sacralized. And so it has its own meaning within the register of religious speech, um, but it's sort of disconnected from, as you're pointing out, this sort of broader uh, implications yeah. well, within is- health and deliverance and – I mean, you know, we're we're uh, we're preaching to ourselves here, but and, <laughs> yeah. and we're and we're amening here. But one of the things that I recognized immediately when I, I I was sitting in this other room when I first started translating, then I moved to the uh, upstairs in our house. I'm in the basement now. I would always pick up Bauer Arndt Gingrich Danker, uh-huh. and I would also pick up Liddell and Scott or yeah. the the condensation of it in the Brill. In yeah. the bro. And now I have the Cambridge. Uh, I love the I Cambridge. I haven't seen it yet. I, oh, I know I it's out it. there, but I haven't actually used it. What I noticed very quickly was how theological and Christianized the glosses became in Bauer Arndt Gingrich. Yeah. And this was one of the things that I learned from Golden Gate is he tried to get rid of, uh, let's say, religious theological jargon. Yeah. And jargon's a little bit of a negative word, but, uh, you know, like he uses the word taboo. Uh, I, th- I think it's, you know, for what we would normally call holy. Uh, I don't think it's for harem, but in, um, I, I had to make a decision not to look at Bauer Arndt Gingrich at times because mm. I knew what he was going to do was mm-hmm. they. Yeah. And so I started using far more of the more classical lexica in order to keep it, uh, let's say, at the level of the language that the people who heard it would have uh, understood it. Yeah. Well, and and I guess that was, I mean, that was one of the hard things. So like I, I, I 100%, I'm like, yeah, I totally agree with the use of the LSJ and Brill and some of those things. But sometimes the translation just gets so obscure, I'm not sure that it would – like. Is that is that what you think a Greek speaker would have understood? So like the one the one of the examples that I give, like we end up, you know, we everybody reads the Gospel of John, right? It's so easy in the Greek, or at least that's what we say. But one of the things that Jesus asks his mom, you know, so there's they're at the Cain oh. of Galilee. Uh, and, and so, you know, your translation starting in chapter two, verse two, both Jesus and his apprentices, uh, for for the rest of us, usually that's disciples, but I like it. Apprentices uh, were called to the marriage. Wine's lacking. Jesus' mother says to him, they do not have wine. And then this is what Jesus says to me. What is, or this is what Jesus says. Uh, Jesus says to her, what is there to me and to you, woman? My hour has not yet come, right? And so it's one of those ones where I'm like, but that's kind of the question. Would it have sounded as obscure to a Greek speaker as it is to us as English speakers? Because that – I mean that's almost I, – I don't know. If someone came up to me and said, what is there to me and to you, I'm not sure that I would know what they were talking about. Um, I'm not so sure that's true. But yes, I uh, I mean there's a only – you know, in English, we yeah. only will make this a dynamic equivalent. Yeah. That's that's what we do. Yeah. But these two dative's yeah to me and to you are connected by and and so what is there to me and to you? Yeah. Uh I think that suggests what is there between us? What is what is the relationship of me to you in this situation? Mhm. Um I but think that even only, makes more sense to me. I can understand that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I can. I, I, I'm with you. I get you. I get what you're saying, and I think I knew what I was doing there. Uh, <laughs> I'm, it's a it's a literal translation of what's actually in the Greek, right? Yeah. What is there to me and to you? That's exactly what the Greek text says. Tmoi kai soi. Yeah, yeah. So I translated that. Yeah. 
Yeah, I don't know. It's just like when I was reading it, I was like, but that's just so hard because I, I mean, it, you know, I think um, I mean, you know, I, uh, we could talk about like how uh, well, like, for instance, um, the, the when you ask in Greek, how are you doing? Um, uh, you say posechis. How are you having? Um, right. And similar to the Latin, komoro te habis. Um, but you would never say that in English. You'd say, how are you? Um, yeah. And so. Yes, it's, it, but you see. I want people to feel what the Greek text is saying rather than what a natural English equivalent would be. Yeah. So I'm doing this on purpose. Yeah. And they're going to have the NIV or the NLT or whatever they're using in front of them, the NRSV UE, and they're going to look at it and go, I see. But they'll look at mine and they'll go, so that's sort of what the Greek says. And I say, yeah, that's what the Greek says. Yeah. But they'll find I, I don't have to worry about dynamic equivalence. <laughs> it's everywhere. Yeah, fair enough. So this well, I mean, the other I just I just realized this as I'm talking to you. So I teach uh, intro to Greek every year um, at the Catholic seminary and and they're they're good students. So I don't think they'd do this. But now when I give them the assignment uh, to, you know, not look at a translation when they're translating um, so I can see if they're re- like what they're understanding or they aren't, they can go to your text and get a pretty <laughs> – I got to make sure they don't know that this text exists. But, well, I've, uh... <laughs> I've, I've said this to other Greek professors, you know, te- people who teach Greek, beginning Greek. Your students will love this translation. Yeah. Because I'm giving them uh, much more of a crystal clear – uh, reading of that Greek in the, yeah. into English than they're going to get with a dynamic tr- uh, equivalent translation. So, so please tell them to pick it up. <laughs> well, sometimes what we do is, and I, I don't, um, I have kind of different reasons that I like uh, sort of the theology and the work of N.T. Wright and David Bentley Hart for different things that they that they do. But sometimes I'll have the students compare those uh, to what they come up with just so they can see, Okay, Mm -hmm. here's one person who has, you know, some sometimes uh, it feels like N.T. Wright smuggling in a lot of his covenant the way that he talks about covenant theology and stuff like that. And I want them to see like that some of this has to do with the work that he's done elsewhere that he's bringing in. And, and so I want them to be able to spot that. Um, And then, and then, but sometimes I, you know, I think like, well, even David Bentley Hart, you know, he's very aware of the, the, the sort of the Greek Hellenistic world. um, And I, you know, and that's, and so he'll let that come in, but I want them to see both of those yeah. um, as part of like, okay, well, what you know, it's how hard it is to figure out what this says. Uh, and you know, Chad, the uh, the interesting thing is, if they look at a NRSV, yeah, or um, NIV, it's so bland. Yeah, right, the, right, right. The edges aren't there. Yeah, Tom Tom provides a dynamic equivalent at the the most uh, Englishy of levels. Yeah, and David Bentley Hart and I, I read him on every verse as I translated. Yeah, because I really liked when he first came out. I thought, uh oh, I <laughs> he's doing what I'm doing. Well, he he really wasn't. Um, I didn't like the fact that he put and for every chi in the whole New Testament. I mean, it <laughs> it adds about fifteen pages. Um, but, um, I think I think David Bentley Hart is closer to what I'm doing than Tom yeah. Wright. Yeah. And I I enjoyed reading uh David Bentley Hart. Um I think he's a bit crabby if I can <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he would be surprised to hear you say that. He's been on the podcast. He was at SLU for a while when I uh, yeah. came here. So yeah. uh so I know him a little bit, but yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think that I think that's right. I mean, uh, you know, I think the phrase that he uses on his is he he tries to make it pitilessly literal. Um, you know, so, so such a uh, uh, hearty in language, if I can say it. Uh, yeah. But yeah, but I feel like but, yours might be more pitiless. Actually, uh, that yeah, may be mine what is. He, yeah, I do. Th- I do think he intrudes more, far more than I do. Yeah. Uh, but there's there's points of his that are very very literal, and you know uh, there's a scholar in England, Richard Burridge, who's doing a translation of the New Testament, or at least the Gospels, but I think it's the whole New Testament that will sustain 
can retain the Greek word order. <laughs> but but again, I mean, this is just this is where I find it so hard. Like when like I did some I did a weird program where we spoke Latin, uh, and so like I was in Rome where we only spoke Latin for for several months, and like eventually you learn to hear Latin as Latin. Um, and I realized quickly that I couldn't translate, uh, in the word order of Latin in English and have it make sense. I had to learn how, like in, in some way, or it's, it's similar to German, right? When I was learning German, I had to learn German word order and wait forever for that verb to come. Right. Um, Especially in the 19th century. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah that's I right. mean, yeah. Trying to learn how to read Bart. I mean, just, it drove me nuts, but, um, and but but that was part of the 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 sort of the mental framework of speakers of the language, and so the, I guess that's just the hard thing in trying to figure out what does it mean to do a translation. Um, is if you leave it in that word order, like for, I mean, you can't you know there's no there's no preposition you could put there for the accusative. Um, so if you don't have the accusative in the play, you know how do you mark accusative? If we're doing Hebrew, you've got at, uh, but you don't have. Uh, something yeah. like that to show the relationship to the verb. So you have to yeah. use syntax. I, 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 I would agree. I, I tried to do as little of that as I could and uh, make sense in English. And at times I've, uh, the, my editor, my first editor at InterVarsity called it, uh, he, he was happy for how chunky it was. Yeah. He liked that word. And I thought that's, that's a fair description. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, yeah. Interesting. Um, yeah. So, um, let's see. So, yeah. So anyway, so that kind of explains what's going on. So that's, I mean, I just picked that one out, like I said, cause I knew it was particularly difficult. Uh, one of the other ones that I wanted to talk about was, um, we already did, but you know, you do a good job. You use the language of deliverance as we talked about. So I picked out this place in acts where in the English translation, it goes back and forth, uh, between healing and salvation, but the root is all the same. Soter, yeah. sozo, soteria, and all of those kind of um, uh, uh, variations. But you you write, uh, and so this is Peter speaking, if we today are being examined for this good work for a weakened human by which this man is delivered, let it be known to you and to all – uh, and to all Israel's people that in the name of Jesus Christus, whom you crucified, whom God raised from among the dead ones, and this, uh, this person has stood before you healthy. And then this is italicized. This one is the stone. Oh, because it's a quotation. This is the stone, the one devalued by you. Uh, the one who became the corner's head. And then you say deliverance uh, is in no other, for there is no other name under heaven uh, that is given to humans in which it's necessary for us to be delivered. And so you use that deliverance all throughout to show the consistency of the language. And I thought, you know, I really appreciated the, uh, like I say, the consistency there because it is the same root, but most English translations just go back and forth on all of them. And you could be for, mistaken for thinking there was no connection uh, yeah, between yeah. salvation and health. And that, and this is one of the things that uh, I think comes through in a translation that does try to gloss um, a Greek word with one English word as, mu as much as is reasonable. Yeah. Uh, is that you will be able to make these connections that otherwise people do not make in the English Bible, in the English dynamic translations. So I, I appreciate that example that you bring up from Acts chapter four. Yeah. Well, and uh, one other one that I couldn't help. Well, and, and I asked this question uh, there. So sometimes you were doing it like a genitive absolute. And that, I didn't realize I wasn't paying enough attention to the Greek that that's what was going on. Uh, but you use these ellipses, which I thought were meant to indicate uh, a gap in the text or a gap in the reading. Uh, but they're they're there to show the genitive absolute. Yeah. Um, we have and, that in the in the uh, introduction, but I've already learned. From um, <laughs> a couple people that they didn't look at the introduction, and uh, I, I can't I can't uh, define this every time it appears. Yeah. But but um, you know what does it mean to have, be absolute? You know we use this word because it's not connected, and yeah. so I disconnected it. I didn't mm. know any other way to do it. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah, well, and that's right. That's always again another hard, a really hard thing to teach a new Greek student. Uh, our, it is, <laughs> yeah, how to deal with those. 
Um, one other one that I just for fun uh, wanted to ask you about was uh, Philippians three, and I mean, there's not really a whole lot to say, but I'll. Uh, I when I first learned, uh, uh, well, and my like I had a, so a high school Bible class of some sort, and the professor or the teacher used the word skubalon, uh, and and it was the first Greek word I ever remembered, um, <laughs> and and I was a, I was a high school boy with a high school boy's mind. Um, and so learning now, he told us that it, it was the crudest, uh, word. Uh, I think there's some debate about this, but, uh, you go with feces. So Paul says, um, let's see, uh, is it first eight? Yeah. So verse eight, um, and just so the audience can get a sense of your, the, you know, the style, uh, I consider all matters to be a forfeit because of the higher status of knowing Christus Jesus, my Lord, because of whom I forfeited all matters and I consider them to be theses uh, so that I may gain Christos. I think most of them are like rubbish or rags or I don't know. They're like other words that other translators use. And you, I like, I like that you reach for theses, uh, I wasn't going to say the swear word. I don't know. I don't know. I don't, I don't know exactly who's listening, but everybody can figure well, it out. Um, I, f- frankly, um, Skubalon uh, has been often flipped around by New Testament professors and people who read Greek and just use the vulgar term. And um, there is a, there's a book about, I think it's on medical terms in Paul. Mm. Um, and I'm, I'm of an age where I don't have to remember the author's <laughs> names all the time, but, um, Mike Bird put me onto this book. Okay. Uh, he's a friend of mine and he mentioned this. So I, I got a copy of it. Uh, I ordered it through our library and read it. And I think he makes a really good case that this would have been in the medical register mm. rather than in the vulgarity register. Okay. But it is... Very popular in classrooms with seminary students and college <laughs> students who like the who like to use vulgar terms uh, to find out that Paul was vulgar just like them, and then they feel like the, the Bible justifies that. That would have their, been me. That would have been yeah. yes. And yeah. a lot of people, a lot of people <laughs> like that. And I probably would have sided with that. Uh, I, I don't think I would ever have translated it that way because I don't think university would have permitted it. But um, so I read that, and and it, it's quite convincing that this term is found mostly in medical writers describing, uh, you know, what we would call a diagnostic or analytical uh, mm. term, yeah, or or thing, yeah, uh, organic matter. Uh, so I used the word feces, and yeah. uh, I thought of using crap. That's the <laughs> word I would have gone toward. Yeah. Uh, but uh, so I wanted to check my translation, so I read the extensive chapter on it, and uh, that's where it is. Well, that's helpful. I, I'm gonna. I need to find that book. I don't. I don't know that one. Yeah. Um, I, I wish I, I, I. It's somewhere in some of my notes somewhere. Oh, I'm sure I could find it. I I had a yeah. class with Dale Martin, and he does a lot of stuff with medical uh, terminology and things like that. I'm mm. sure he would be able to help me on that one. So, yeah. Um, well. Um, I thought I'd a- end with just another like sort of softball question, I guess. But like, so what what kinds of things uh, have you learned from, you know, you've translated this whole thing over two years. Um, has it changed the way that you um, think theologically, the way that you preach, the way uh, I mean, is this just sort of a culmination of your career in some ways as a New Testament scholar? So a lot of it you probably already knew. I don't know. Any any takeaways from a work like this? Um. It's an interesting question because, yes, I've been teaching the New Testament for, I'm in my 41st year as a professor. Okay. Time for me to move on, eh? Um, Make room for the younger set. Um, But um, I think the daily engagement with the text um, leads me to say it's hard work to translate consistently with a theory. Mm. It's easy to slip into familiar English language of the New Testament because I'm already familiar with it. I know what it says, 
But uh, the discipline of saying, I don't know what this says, and I need to back off. Um, One thing that became clear to me, this is something, very few people have translated the whole book of Acts. Mm. And and I'm talking about New Testament professors, and they will not admit this. But (laughs) I demanded them to admit it to me. So I asked, I have not met anyone who has translated the whole thing in Greek. And now I haven't asked that many. Yeah. So, but I mean, if I were to bump into Craig Keener, I'd think Craig Keener say I've translated, but I've talked to students who've done PhDs in the book of Acts. And I said, did you translate the whole thing? No. And I've talked to people who've written Greek grammars and Greek syntax. Have you translated the whole book of Acts? No. The second half of the book of Acts is an adventure in vocabulary expression. Oh, sure. That is not found elsewhere in the New Testament. I found the pastoral epistles far more sophisticated in Greek than I expected, and I had read quite a bit of it. Mm-hmm. Um, Hebrews is the one that gets all the glory for being the most difficult, but I would I would say Hebrews is easy compared to the second half of Acts and to the pastoral epistles. Yeah, it's got some highfalutin stuff going on. Um, but daily translating, I mean, like, it was three to four hours every day. And sometimes yeah. I would go in the afternoon. I usually can't do creative work that much in the afternoon. I can edit and stuff and read. But um, I found it spiritually lifting just to just to be translating the New Testament all day long. I thought, this is all I have to do is translate. Here's Chad. This is something I wanted to do. My editor wouldn't wouldn't let me. I wanted to put the Lord's Prayer in the King James version. <laughs> she and, said, and, "Why?" I said, "Because that's what we say every yeah. Sunday." <laughs> she wouldn't let me, so I had to translate it. Yeah, that's good. I mean, I I have read. I, I mean, I can say I have. Uh, I've not tried to translate, but I have read through uh, the second half of Acts, and I find it the most difficult always to do. In part because no one ever preaches from it either, um, yeah, and no, so right. you you know, so you don't really know the text, but all the nautical terms and yes. all the rest of it. But it's funny because I I learned classical Latin first, and then have done more work in ecclesiastical Latin. But if I'm looking for how to explain sort of classical expressions, I find most of them in in the Vulgate of the of Acts, the second half of Acts. Yeah, um, yeah. And so you have a more sophisticated expression, and I can almost always find a version of it in Acts. Yeah, um, and yeah. so I have it's like good. found these random uh, you know little suggestions from it. And again. I, I do a little bit of Greek, but but I, I am uh, I'm actually writing a Latin grammar, so it should be out soon with Catholic U. So we'll see Good how that you. goes. But yeah. Uh, I yeah I and then uh, some of my students have asked if I would do a Greek grammar. I was like, well, there are more than enough of those. Um, yeah, no one has tri- <laughs> no one has tried to do uh, an ecclesiastical Latin book in some some decades. So uh, at least there won't be too many on the market. But yeah. Um, well, I really appreciate you taking your time. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, uh, thank you for this work. It'll be, you know, so it sounds like, uh, you, you sort of expect some people to, to pick this up if they're already familiar, maybe not the first thing you read, uh, yeah, if you're yeah. reading the Bible for the first time. Uh, but it is helpful to, um, get, get a kind of handle on, uh, what this feels like in a, as, as you say, an untranslated approach and, uh, maybe an un, um, but like, like trying not to betray uh, in the old uh, in the old sense. Well, uh, thank you so much, uh, Doctor McKnight, and um, yeah, hopefully we'll talk to you again. With I don't know what's next. What is next on the plate for you? I don't know. Um, well, probably for us, it'll be a book on. Uh, I'm doing a book on Jesus and the Pharisees right now. It's kind of slow work, but uh, it's going to be with Fortress Press. Okay. So, but so I really appreciate. Being being with you again, Chad. It's fun. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much.